Hi everyone, it's Kevin. So this is the third in our four-part series on capturing carbon dioxide from the air. And so just a reminder again that if you haven't listened to those first two episodes, that uh, you should really go back and listen to those ones first. Okay, here we go. Hello, Tony. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now, over the last two episodes, we've been looking at carbon capture. Can we build machines that would take carbon dioxide out of the air? Yes. And in the first episode, we met our scientist, Klaus Lackner, and learned about how it is technically possible to take CO2 out of the air and do so in a pretty efficient way. But then in the last episode, we saw how there were other challenges that stood in the way to making carbon capture play a big part of the solution to climate change. The main one was financial. No one is really paying anyone to take CO2 out of the air. And because of that, the technology is staying at a pretty low scale and is also still pretty expensive. So Klaus has been working on this forever. Surely it's come to his attention that this is a big issue. Has, has he got any suggestions? Well, yeah, it is something that he's thought a lot about. And for the moment, it doesn't seem like the solution is going to come from the top down. Like the, the types of regulations that we spoke about in our last episode that would help carbon capture actually get off the ground aren't really in the cards anywhere yet. So Klaus's solution? In a world where the regulatory framework won't push it from the top down, you have to push it from the bottom up. What would that look like? Well, Klaus's idea is that we basically need ordinary people like you and me to get together and say, hey, negative emissions are a thing that we want. How is that going to be effective? Well, Klaus gives the example of how recycling developed in America. So after World War II, the economy took off and people were suddenly buying all sorts of new products along with all the packaging that came along with these products. It's the automatic twin juice fountain in the 1955 Westinghouse refrigerator. It serves delicious fruit juice, freshly mixed at the touch of a finger. With all of these new appliances and products, way more waste was being created. But in response, people started to get together and demand recycling so they could take care of their waste in a responsible way. And so Klaus's idea is that maybe carbon capture could develop in a similar way. I see it as akin to the old recycling campaigns of the 70s and 80s, where people have to say, we want that. And keep in mind, people couldn't recycle by themselves either, right? So they needed a municipality or whoever picked up the garbage to give them a, a green bin to put in recycling, right? And that happened. Then recycling grew in momentum. Politicians jumped on board. And after a while, the infrastructures that were needed for recycling were put into place. Then after enough people did it, it became mandatory. And I think we have to generate the same outlook in people, the same way of thinking about it on CO2 too. Right? If you drive a car and you burn a gallon of gasoline, you put 20 pounds of CO2, you dumped into the atmosphere. Right? maybe you should figure out how to get it back. And since you individually probably cannot, you should demand that somebody does it on your behalf and you have then to show that you are willing to pay for it. So Klaus, smart guy, like that totally is a case of bottom-up change. And if you think about Germany where we are, it's become 
like the cardinal sin to not recycle. <laughs> yes. People are very serious about recycling here. There's many different colors of bins. Green bins, blue bins, yellow bins. Yeah, and if you don't do it, you, you may as well just, you know, pee in someone's flower pot. It's that <laughs> level of social stigma associated with it. Yeah, exactly. And so according to Klaus, we individuals need to step up to the plate just like we did or people did for recycling and say we want to do this and we will pay for it. Please provide the ability to clean up the CO2 that we produce. So doesn't a version of this already exist? Like when you when you book a flight, they, they offer you to offset your carbon through planting trees? Right. Like I think this got a bit more play like around a decade ago or it seemed to be like more of a thing that was advertised. But yeah, they exist. But these offsets, to be honest, even when they're done with the best of intentions, are pretty dubious. They usually work not by truly removing carbon dioxide out of the air, but by funding some kind of activity that basically says this much of emissions would have been created, but now instead a lesser amount of emissions were created. But even then, it's super hard to be able to say that they really did prevent that amount of carbon dioxide from being released. Doesn't sound like Klaus would like this kind of vibe. <laughs> You're right. I don't think the current offsets are the right way of doing it because they are a little shady in the way that, oh, I I could have emitted this much, but now I only emitted this little and I want a credit for the difference. I want true, it's taken out of the environment and it is put away. So there's clearly a change in the carbon budget and we made this happen. That, I think, is the proper way to go about it. But a true and honest negative emission like that is not something that you can really buy yet. No one is really offering that as a public service. But largely because of this dilemma that we're stuck in, that no one is demanding it and saying it's something that they would actually pay for. So Klaus hopes that maybe volunteers can help get the ball rolling. So if you get a tiny percentage of the population to say, if I buy gasoline, I will get my CO2 back. If you start getting a tiny number of volunteers doing that, it will change the debate and it will start to create the business models necessary for people to actually offer this as a service, right? And right now, uh, if I talk to a company about this, that's all fine and great, but you write me a business plan on that, right? But for that, you need to have people stand up and say, yes, I would be willing to do this if it's a credible way of doing it. So maybe what we need is, is like a crowdfunding campaign, you know, something where everybody just gets together, pitches in, and then we give it a shot. Well, I actually asked Klaus about this myself. It's something I ran by him. But Klaus thinks a volunteer initiative would be most likely to be successful in the early days if it was a combined effort between polluters and consumers. My obvious first target would be the oil companies. I would love to see a button on the pump. You push the button and you get charged a little more and then associated with that charge is CO2 removal. I would argue the oil companies should help pay for that because their business model will fall apart in a world where the CO2 is not balanced because eventually somebody will tell them that you cannot put more CO2 in the air. So they should have a vested interest in making this button work and get down the learning curve. So maybe if they can do it for $100 a ton, they split it with a customer and it's 50 cents for both. And then as volunteers, if 0.1% in the U.S. would do this, you would have about, I'm roughly guessing, 7,000 tons of CO2 a day. That's not, it's trivial on the grand scale, but it's a non-trivial operation to put this in place. And then after a few years of developing the technology with the help of volunteers, say through this button on the pump and getting the cost down, 
Klaus thinks that air capture could get to a tipping point, just like what happened with recycling, where politicians would get on board and where they would start to make carbon capture and sequestration actually mandatory. And then once it's been piloted, it can be expanded. Exactly. And while it's never enough with volunteers to turn the climate around, it might be enough to turn the policy around. Okay, so if I try to imagine this, you know, fast-forwarding into the future, and I imagine that all of this has worked out, everybody's got business models figured out, and sequestering is happening, what does that reality actually look like? Well, of course, no one knows for sure. Like, all predictions of the future, we can be wildly off. But I did ask Klaus for his vision of what this world would look like. Keep in mind, these are scenarios, right? Things tend to end up very differently. Uh, but I would argue... In the, in the scenario I'm now painting, I assume that we have decided that we have to pull down a lot. Down a lot of CO2, that is. And if that's the case, the first thing that Klaus expects is that we will have more or less given up fossil fuels, except in areas where you know we really couldn't find other practical solutions. And remember Klaus's resin mattress prototype idea that we talked about last episode? Yeah, the things that go around are like on a ski lift? Exactly. Now, as he says, he fully expects any air capture machines of the future will probably look completely different. But he is pretty sure about one thing, and that's how big each machine should be. And I see a standard size unit to be of a size that I can pack it up in a shipping container and move. By being small enough to fit in a shipping container, it means the machines could be easily delivered to sites all around the world where the carbon would be captured. You also have the advantage if you are at a place where you can only put so much CO2 that if in six months from now this place is not a good place anymore, you pack up your gear and you go to another place. So the machines would be small and mobile. And then the underlying picture is that the actual production is done via mass production. So there's some factories which build them and churn them out just like cars. Taking advantage of mass production would help drive the price down for capturing carbon as low as possible. But using small units also comes with another advantage, and that is that it would allow the technology to evolve and improve as quickly as possible. Just like what's happened with solar power or computers or our phones, they get better each and every year. I'm still struggling to see how that's a function of them being small and compact. So Klaus uses the example of nuclear power. Nuclear energy is a case in point. The reason it's nearly impossible to do anything is every time you try something, you are in a multi-billion dollar affair. You have committed yourself for a 50-year investment, which basically says the technology is frozen. Whereas if you start with small units, which constantly get replaced, you open the door for a trajectory where things can gradually get better. Klaus believes that to start, one shipping container-sized machine could take out about a ton a day of CO2. And then you would scale up not in the size of the machines, but in their numbers. If you think that way, then yes, you have a whole field of them. And so if you want in one place a million tons a year, well, then you better have a few thousand in one place, right? You, know, you would be about three, 4,000 in one location in order to get a million tons a year. And, and here's again where we get a, a sense of the scale of the problem. So let's say that you and I buy one of these units and we set it to work in a, in a field somewhere. Ah, beautiful scene. There's birds chirping in the background and we're there trying to do our part. <laughs> yeah. And if Klaus is right, then 
each day that we have our machine up and running in this field, we could capture a ton of CO2 and would feel pretty good about that, right? That'd be pretty decent. I mean, we'd be not just neutral, but we'd be reducing other people's emissions as well. Right. It would mean in a year we would be offsetting our own emissions many times over. But let's say that we wanted to be even more generous. So generous that we wanted to be pulling down all of humanity's emissions. So not just you and me, but the whole planet. The whole planet. Oh. Uh, which is 36 billion tons a year. Any guess of how many of these machines we would need? I'm not going to embarrass myself or, or my family <laughs> <laughs> by giving you a, a, a wrong calculation. So give me the numbers. Here's Klaus. So if you wanted 36 billion tons a year, that's going to be 100 million such containers. 100 million carbon capture units up and running. And of course, they won't last forever. If they last 10 years, then you have to build 10 million a year to maintain that fleet. Okay, so that sounds like we're committing to like a lot, to a hell of a lot. It is a lot. But on the other hand, we humans by now are very good at building incredible numbers of things. We build 80 million cars and trucks a year. And Shanghai Harbor ships out 30 million containers that are full. So there is a production capacity behind Shanghai, which is bigger than what the world as a whole would need to do air capture on all of its emissions. So since the Industrial Revolution, we've, we're just like good at making a lot of things at an incredibly high scale. And like even just one area in China could do this kind of thing. Perhaps. This is such a roller coaster because I'm feeling hopeful again now. And I've just come from the pits of hopelessness. And now I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, totally. We could do this just with, you know, a city in China. <laughs> totally. Well, I'm glad you feel like that because that's how I felt talking to Klaus too. You know, at some points I felt great despair when you learn how big the challenge is. And at other points I, I, I felt like, wait a minute, we could actually do this. So it sounds like we could do this theoretically in terms of capacity. But what about land, surface area? Do we have a space to put all this stuff? Well, this was one of the calculations that Klaus made right at the very beginning when he started working on air capture. And it turns out that compared to the land needed by renewables, capturing carbon dioxide would have a surprisingly small footprint. Because the machines are just the size of a shipping container, you could fit a large number on a relatively small amount of land. Uh, so in about a square kilometer, Klaus thinks you could pull down about a million or two tons a year. That would say that you could be about, not quite as compact, but close to what a power plant is. Right? Because a big gigawatt coal plant produces about 7 million tons of CO2 a year. And I looked it up here on Google Map because there are some big ones in the northern end of the state. But this is desert, so they have plenty of room, so they are very big with their footprint. But by the time you have their water pond and their coal pile and the perimeter fence I looked up, that was like nine square kilometers. So you could actually collect that much CO2 on that amount of land. So that's a good way to put that into perspective. That's how much land we're taking up to produce the CO2. It stands to reason that we could use that space as well to take it out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, it, it's uh, totally doable. And just think a small shipping container can fit about two cars. And we have, you know, how many cars do we have on the planet? We have certainly hundreds of millions of cars on the planet. As, as my seven-year-old uh, self would say, bajillions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but where would we put these? Would these be in, in like urban areas or out in the wilderness somewhere? 
Well, the idea is that they would be shipped to locations around the world that have the best conditions for capturing carbon dioxide. So the main things you would need besides land is a place nearby that would be capable of storing the carbon dioxide. So we will find sites where you see lots of air capture devices clustered around a place to put the CO2. And since we probably don't want to be burning more fossil fuels to be running the machines, you'd also want to have a source of renewable energy close by that you could use to run them. Hence, it's not a bad idea to be next to a big solar farm because the solar farm provides the electricity and we take the excess. But another factor is climate because, you know, at least for Klaus's machine, where they use water to push the carbon dioxide back off the material, they need a, a dry climate like Arizona. So we have to take that into account. You know, deserts would be a great place for Klaus to work. But say there's a location where there's clean energy and good storage space, but that's also super rainy, then we would need to use a different type of process there. So I think there is an advantage of learning to use more than one method to do this. And as I mentioned before, there are other people who are developing different techniques. So depending on exactly where in the world we are, we could use different technologies for capturing the CO2, which would be best suited to the local conditions. Okay, so now we have the land and we figured out ways of getting the CO2 out of the atmosphere. Have we figured out in this scenario where we're going to put it? Well, that's a very big question. And to be honest, it's one I've avoided mentioning until now. And with good reason, because according to both Tim Flannery and Klaus Lackner, where we're going to put all the carbon dioxide that we take out of the air is maybe the hardest thing about making air capture actually work at scale. The really hard part, in my view, is where do we put all that carbon? Because there's an enormous amount. Right, because the volumes are so enormous, it's kind of mind-boggling as to where we put all that stuff. And that's the challenge which makes that so hard. It's the sheer volumes, the sheer mass, and then you have to give guarantees that it's permanent. And this is why I like Klaus in particular, because it's not like he's just been working on the engineering for the past 20 years, but he's also thought about the economics, he's thought about the policies, he's thought about the regulations, and... I'm also trying to figure out, once I have my hands on the CO2, what can I do with it? <laughs> he sounds like the Leonardo da Vinci of carbon capturing, you know, all these different disciplines that he's mastering at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so what is his, what is his grand idea? Well, it's not, it's not one grand idea, but one idea that Klaus likes, which wouldn't be storing carbon dioxide permanently, is to recycle it. What? To recycle it? You mean like in the carbon drinks that we talked about earlier? No, something else. It sounds almost too good to be true, but it turns out that we could use the CO2 we've captured from the air to create fuels again. You mean like hydrocarbons? Yeah, like the regular kind of heating gas or liquid car fuels that we use in our everyday life. If you give me energy and CO2 and water, we can make fuels. You can make methanol, you can make dimethyl ether, you can make gasoline, you can make anything you want. All of this is now feasible. And you do that just by adding energy? Basically. The CO2 molecules you get have no energy. They are just the, the carbon substrate. But by putting in the energy, we can essentially reverse the combustion process. We can unburn the CO2. But how would that even work? Well, all you really need is electricity, water, the CO2, and some rather expensive electrolyzing equipment. 
and then you can basically recreate gasoline or methane or any other hydrocarbon. Except instead of coming out of the ground as a fossil fuel, they would be created out of carbon dioxide that's been taken from the air. So they would be chemically identical to regular fossil fuels, but at the end of the day, carbon neutral. That's really fancy. Right? It seems pretty cool. And Klaus sees this as potentially solving two problems. The first one is that no matter how much we tackle climate change, there will still probably be a large demand for liquid hydrocarbon fuels, like gasoline, because they're just so good at what they do. Liquid carbon-based fuels are extremely efficient in holding energy and carrying energy around. Gasoline has 100 times as much energy per kilogram as a battery, as a high-performance battery. So liquid fuels, because of their lightweight, are really the perfect power for transportation. Batteries, in comparison, are super heavy. So while we, you know, we all know about Tesla and electric cars, and that's been shown to be feasible, but because of the added weight that would be necessary to carry the batteries, it's very possible that we will never be able to create practical jumbo jets that would be electric. But instead, we could use energy from solar and wind alongside carbon dioxide that we've captured from the air to make synthetic jet fuels that could power our planes. And then we wouldn't have to re-engineer anything. We could just change how we source the fuels, and then we would be able to fly in a truly carbon-neutral fashion. Oh, wow. That totally makes sense. The other problem that synthetic fuels like this could solve is really one of the fundamental problems with renewable energy that you can't control when it's made. What do you mean? Well, I mean, we, we can't exactly plan when it's going to be a cloudy day or if it's going to be oh, windy yeah. or not. Right, yeah. And, and because of that, with renewable energy, there are always points when supply and demand don't quite match up. Sometimes on a cloudy day, people are using a lot of energy or take wind energy. With wind, when the wind speed doubles, you have eight times as much power, right? So it's very hard to match supply and demand on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, but it's also hard to do it on a day-by-day, -day, and for that matter, on a season-by-season -season basis. So it's just unavoidable that with renewables, sometimes we'll be making too much electricity and sometimes too little. And when there's too much electricity being made, it really isn't worth anything. We still have to learn that electricity is only valuable when we want it. But in a world where you make electricity whenever it happens to be made, then the electricity which is made at the wrong time is actually not terribly valuable. And not valuable is actually an understatement. It can actually be worth less than nothing. So it costs us money. Yeah, exactly. So in Germany, on average, you know, 30-something percent of the electricity is made with renewable energy. But even with that percentage, Germany already regularly has points where the market price for electricity actually dips to, to negative. Meaning that if you're, you know, a big factory, during these periods, you can actually be paid to help consume the excess electricity because it's critical for the stability of the grid that supply and demand match up basically perfectly. Why is that so important? Like, what happens if that doesn't happen? It causes all sorts of problems. I mean, if, if supply is too low, then, of course, there's brownouts and blackouts, uh, which would obviously be a disaster for the economy of any country. And if there's too much, then, you know, it can basically lead to the system breaking down. Because there's, we don't have decent ways of storing that excess energy. Yeah, exactly. So if we really are going to build an electric system that's entirely renewable or close to it, then we're going to need lots of ways of storing electricity to even out the periods when there's both too much electricity being made and not enough. So 
you need storage systems built into this. And I would argue making chemical fuels is a natural storage, which is good for the long term. So Klaus's idea is that whenever there's more electricity being made than we can actually use for our regular needs, then Klaus or, or someone like him could use that energy along with a carbon capture machine to make liquid fuels. We can come in as what I would call a flexible consumer. We, because we make fuels, we can choose to run whenever electricity is in oversupply. We don't have to run all the time and we become a grid stabilizer. And this comes with another advantage. You can now overbuild the renewable energy system because you, you always have a customer now, right? So the idea is whenever there is too much, we make fuels. And then if there's a cloudy day with no wind and there's not enough electricity being made to meet demand, then some of that liquid fuel could be burned to make electricity again. But most of the time, there will be more than enough. And so on average, you end up with net fuel production and that then goes into the transportation sector. So now I can fly airplanes, I can, can drive cars and I can do all of these things without ever touching oil underground. So I see a world where the electric power grid and the transportation fuels merge into one energy infrastructure where you can move back and forth from one side to the other. Then you can have an entirely closed carbon cycle, which is a different story from the negative emissions. So making fuels out of captured carbon dioxide would come with a bunch of solutions which would help us get to a truly climate sustainable world but it still wouldn't be permanently getting rid of CO2 and reducing the amounts in our atmosphere. But another idea that would be a true negative emission is that we could make things out of the CO2 that we capture. What do you mean make things out of CO2, like besides fuel? Yeah, so it turns out that we can make plastics. Plastics are polymers, which are essentially long chains of carbon atoms linked together. And in a similar way to how we make those synthetic fuels, there's also the potential to create all sorts of day-to-day -day products from the carbon dioxide that we've taken out of the air. Here's Tim Flannery again. He's the Australian climate expert that we spoke with in the last two episodes, who has written a book entirely about negative emissions. Um, I've even held in my hand a little plastic mobile phone cover made from atmospheric CO2. It's probably the most expensive mobile phone cover in the known universe, but you know, you can do it, right? So those technologies really exist. And so those things become substances in the world as opposed to CO2 floating around the atmosphere. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just cell phone cases. We could also make building materials out of CO2. Some of the really exciting stuff includes um, the manufacture of, of carbon fibre right from atmospheric CO2. And there's a guy from George Washington University who's just pioneered this technology. It's really exciting because carbon fiber is the lightest, hardest material that we, we have commonly available. Um, it could be competing head on with steel and aluminium, for example, which are big sources of emissions. So if we can make the stuff cheaper and get it competing, you've got a massive tool for cleaning up industry on the planet and capturing CO2 at the same time. It's also an idea that Klaus likes. We could build bridges out of carbon fibers, right? And so if you store more and more carbon in the, in the infrastructure, you don't have to bury it underground because you now have it tied up in the infrastructure. That could be concrete, that could be carbon fibers, that could be plastics, that could be wood. This is where I'm like, 
properly impressed in terms of the, the thought and how that's really genius. It's really cool, right? But the only downside, and it is a big one, is that with us emitting 40 billion tons of CO2 each year, there's not enough cell phone cases or bridges in the world for us to be able to make things out of all of our carbon waste. Right. So utilization, which people really like, they say, oh, well, let's do something nice with the CO2. It works. But it's in tiny quantities on the end. We in the US, on average, are responsible for 17 tons of CO2 per person per year. Right. We're not consuming anything but water at that scale. And so if you want to make wallboard, if you want to make roads, if you ask how much concrete and aggregate we use, we're not coming close, right? So I don't see how to consume it. So in the end, I have to dispose of it. So in effect, it'll be one part of the solution, using it for useful activities, but we'll still have to do some burying. Yeah. So in a way, we're, we're back where we started. Um, and what are our options? Well, around when Klaus was first starting, an early idea was to just dump all of that CO2 into the ocean. We looked at ocean disposal, which back then was the solution people advocated. They said, well, the ocean is big and you just dissolve a little bit of carbonic acid into the ocean and the problem is gone. But that proposed solution came with a different problem. Well, if you're really talking about these amounts of CO2, how acidic will the ocean get? And, well, you probably will kill all the coral reefs, right? So that didn't look like a good option. Mm. So where can we put it? So if it can't be in the sky and it can't be in the ocean, then you know we're really left with the, the one option, which is burying it. And luckily, there's lots of deep geological formations around the world that could be suitable for storing carbon dioxide. So they're not just doing it willy-nilly? No. So you need very specific conditions. And what are those? Well, essentially what you need is a layer of porous rock deep underground. These are rocks like sandstone that have lots of tiny little holes and spaces in them that other material, like gas, can hide in. But the trick is that this porous rock also needs to be covered by a different type of rock called cap rock. These are basically dense rocks like shale, which liquids and air can't pass through. This cap rock does exactly what it sounds like. It literally caps the rock and makes sure that the CO2 gas will stay trapped in the porous layers below. That sounds very specific and probably rare. It is relatively rare, but this is actually... Also, the the types of formations that oil and gas are found in. So they're rare, but there's lots of them. So we're sending it back to the place from whence it came. Exactly. And there are already some early projects using these types of underground formations to store carbon dioxide in. So, for example, there's a natural gas capture operation called Sleipnir off the coast of Norway. At this site, mixing with a natural gas that they take out of the deep seabed is carbon dioxide. And in order so that they can sell the natural gas, they need to first get rid of the CO2. Now, this CO2 used to just be separated from the natural gas and then vented off to the atmosphere. But since 1996, in order to avoid paying a carbon tax, Equinor, the Norwegian state oil company, has been taking another step. After they separate the carbon dioxide, instead of just releasing it to the air, they re-inject that CO2 back into a sandstone formation that lies about a kilometer underneath the seafloor. By now, close to 20 million tons of CO2 have been stored this way. And 
And that's working, no incidents, no Chernobyl of Norway? Yeah, so it seems to be working. And all of the monitoring and tests they've done have shown no evidence of leakage. And they're monitoring it all the time. But of course the challenge is, how do you really guarantee that it's not just going to leak back out in the long term? Because as Tim Flannery points out, the big difficulty with storing CO2 underground comes down to its very nature. And the big problem is that it's a gas, right? You know, if you bury it under Earth, it always wants to go up. The CO2 keeps on wanting to escape. So in this Norwegian example, it seems to be staying stable. But that's after 20 years. And to really solve our problem, we need to make sure the CO2 gas stays down there essentially forever. If this comes back in 100 years or 1,000 years, you didn't really solve your problem. You need somewhere between five and 10,000 years to have this safely out of circulation because if you don't, you just push the problem to future generations. And so if you start thinking on those timescales, these things start to look hard. Especially since just by drilling down into these formations in the first place to be able to pump down all that CO2, you've at least in a small way compromised the fact that the formation is completely sealed to the surface. Oh, that's, that's a really tricky issue. Like you, you want to put something in this balloon, but in order to get it into the balloon, you have to pop the balloon and then patch it. But by patching it, you've, you've made this compromised spot. Yeah, so it seems to work, but yeah, it comes with this issue that we can't really, really guarantee that it's going to be there forever. Because of this, uh, Tim Flannery has a rule of thumb. Well, look, when you look at storing carbon by the gigaton, you really have to think about where it wants to stay from a chemistry perspective and a physics perspective, you know. But what if I said there was a way to potentially take CO2, put it in the ground, and work with chemistry and physics to basically guarantee it stays there forever? You mean try to create conditions under which the gas naturally wants to stay there. Even better. Something even better. Oh, okay. Go. By turning the CO2 into rock. What? Okay. I'm listening. Well, I I know it doesn't sound like it it should be possible. I mean, there's a a rule of thumb that if something sounds too good to be true, it, you know, usually is. Uh, I believe that I, I subscribe to. But there are a group of scientists in Iceland working on just that crazy sounding idea. And I went to check it out. You went to Iceland? I went to Iceland. Cool. Yeah, and and that's actually what we're going to talk about next episode. <laughs> Cliffhanger, okay. Cool. W- would you would you be up for coming back? Yeah, or... I'll, I'll be here. Okay, great. Then we'll see you and everyone else listening in two weeks' time. This series of episodes was made possible thanks to funding from Climate Kick. Climate Kick is a European knowledge and innovation community that's working towards a prosperous, inclusive, and carbon neutral society. Stopping global temperatures from rising more than two degrees requires unprecedented changes. It requires new social dynamics, new ways of doing business, and new ways of living. While no one organization can tackle climate change alone, Climate Kick helps catalyze the rapid innovation needed across society by supporting climate-positive entrepreneurship, research, and education. It gathers the brightest minds together to help learn about and tackle climate challenges, and also provides mentoring and seed funding to the most promising climate-positive businesses. To learn more about the opportunities and resources that Climate Cake provides, and to see if one might be a fit for you, 
head to climate-kick.org. That's climate-kic.org. This episode was hosted and produced by myself, Kevin Kaners, and co-hosted by Tony Andrews. Additional production and story editing help came from Charlotta Lomas, Christina Peters, and Tony Andrews. The founding producer of The Elephant is Matthias Gutz, and The Elephant was first supported with funding from the Climate Kick Alumni Association. Special thanks to Dominic Hofstetter, Jakob Busman, and the entire Climate Kick community. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks' time.